0: This is Theory of Change. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Thanks for joining me for another episode. We have a very different one today. It is a topic that if you're not familiar with it is definitely going to be one of the weirder ones. But before we get into that, I just wanted to mention that we're part of the Flux Media Network. So go to Flux.community for more articles and podcasts about politics, religion, media, and technology, and how they all intersect. And if you want to get the archives of this show, just go to theoryofchange.show, and we have video, transcript, and audio of every episode. And if you have a paid subscription, you have unlimited access to all the episodes, plus two other episodes two other podcasts that we have at flux doom scroll our comedy news panel and so this just happened our news conversation show so i encourage you to check both of those out and please do support us on patreon or on Substack. so just go to patreon.com slash discover flux all right so with that little plug out of the way let's get into today's episode Truth, as they say, is stranger than fiction. And that is nowhere more the case than in the philosophy of test realism that is capturing the minds of the world's richest people. And if you've never heard of test realism, well, this is going to be one of the weirdest conversations you've ever witnessed. But it is an important philosophy and it is an obsession. What it boils down to is an obsession with the end of humanity. And it is a rebranding of radical right-wing beliefs in a secular religion in many ways. And so one person who has really understood all this very well is Emil Torres. He is our guest on this episode, and he's the author of a new book called Human Extinction, A History of the Science and Ethics of Annihilation. So welcome to Theory of Change. Phil. Thanks for having me. Okay. All right. So. Tescrealism. First of all, what does Tescreal stand for?
1: Good question. Yeah. So prepare yourself for a bunch of really big polycylatic words. It's transhumanism, extropianism, singularitarianism, cosmism, rationalism, effective altruism, and termism. So these are a constellation of ideologies that overlap in all sorts of ways, uh, are interconnected and so on. And ultimately, I think, should be seen as essentially just sort of one organism that extends back to the, really to the late 1980s, but perhaps even uh, earlier in the the 20th century up until the present.
0: Yeah, and so, and to be clear, for the most part, the people who believe these ideas do not actually publicly admit to doing so. That is one of the interesting aspects here, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah. I don't don't know. I mean, there there are a number of leading advocates, leading figures. For the
0: the, the individual items, they'll claim to believe in them, but not like the the bundle, as you're calling it. Yes.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So you you will have some people who say like, yeah, I'm a transhumanist. I was part of the extropian movement, also sympathetic with or even excited about the sort of singularitarian thesis. Mm-hmm. And also a long termist effective altruist and rationalism. But so th- th- there's some people who will say that, but at the same time mm-hmm. going like, well, I I'm I, I don't really identify with this acronym, which denotes yeah. the the bundle of these overlapping and interrelated ideologies.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, so let's maybe start with the uh, I I do want to go through all, all of the the items here. So Let's start with the oldest one that, that kind of came on the scene first, which I guess probably would be transhumanism, right? Mm-hmm. What is transhumanism for people who don't know what that is?
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, transhumanism, first of all, can be thought of as the the backbone to the bundle. It's sort yeah. of the, the through line. <laughs> um, it's a common denominator of a lot of these uh, the subsequent ideologies. And one of the reasons that the acronym I think is, is useful is that the ideologies that it... Um, points to, emerged historically in roughly the same chronology that the letters appear in the acronym. So you're exactly right that transhumanism is the oldest of these ideologies. And it's basically the idea that we should develop advanced emerging technologies, synthetic biology, biotechnology, genetic engineering, advanced native technology, artificial intelligence, and so on, And then use these technologies to radically re-engineer the human organism. So perhaps we could become immortal. We could overcome aging uh, so that our health span, the period of our lives during which we're healthy can be extended indefinitely into the future. Or maybe we could use brain computer interfaces, which Elon Musk's company Neuralink is trying to develop that would enable us to link our brains to computers. Maybe we could then access the internet without having to type simply through thought alone. And so there are other, some transhumanists also have considered the possibility of developing technologies, I've called them like moss tropics, which is based on this term nootropics, which are cognitive enhancements, uh, pharmaceuticals of, of some sort. So mostropics then would be the moral in, analog of that. So these are chemicals that we could use to enhance our morality, to amplify and augment our fundamental moral dispositions of altruism, a sense of justice, and, and so on. So, yeah, so maybe we could become superhumanly moral by re-engineering the, the human organism. So behind transhumanism is this view that we are essentially machines, and improving our the human condition is basically just an engineering problem. And so if we advance science, technology, and engineering sufficiently far enough, then we can just tinker with the human organism and turn mm-hmm. us into this superior new race of post-human beings that are immoral, yeah. superhumanly intelligent, and so on.
0: Yeah, and, and it always had a political dimension to it as well. Transhumanism; it, it's not necessarily tied to a one particular ideological side of the spectrum, and it is the case that transhumanism, especially in the early years, it was something that socialists were into, that communists were into, but it was definitely something that libertarians and right-wing anarchists were very into. Um, you want to yeah. talk about that little dichotomy for a bit?
1: Yeah, sure. W- without a doubt, I mean, this the notion of transhumanism, even before the word was popularized in the second half of the 20th century, uh, in particular by a biologist named Julian Huxley, um, the idea was, was developed by people on different sides of the political spectrum. J.P.S. Haldane was basically a communist, and he was one of the earlier progenitors of the, the transhumanist notion that we can use technologies to essentially just transcend humanity, not just improve the human stock, which was the goal of traditional eugenics, but entirely create just a new, better uh, version of us, call them uh, post-humans. But really, in the late 1980s and early 1990s, when transhumanism sort of coalesced into a kind of cultural intellectual movement facilitated by the World Wide Web, and uh, we'll mention this in a moment, an organization called the Extropy Institute, which gave rise to extropianism, which is really the first organized transhumanist movement. So yeah, in the late 1990s, when modern transhumanism emerged, that was really bound up with a sort of libertarian political outlook. And there are a bunch of reasons uh, for this. But just to give an example of the extent to which this is the case, on the official reading list of the Extropy Institute was Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, So they were very, very inspired by the the libertarian worldview. And ultimately, what they would say is, is, okay, modern transhumanism is a version of liberal eugenics, whereas the old eugenics was authoritarian, and the goal was to implement some kind of top-down regulatory regime that could modify society-wide patterns of reproduction, thereby improving humanity over transgenerational time. They said, actually, with emerging technologies, we don't need the state to be involved. It's not a transgenerational project, maybe within a single lifetime or over just one generation, parent to child, we could use these technologies to radically re-engineer humanity. And so that dovetails with this kind of libertarian notion that we should be free as individuals to determine our own Destiny in life.
0: Yeah. Um, and it also and I'm sorry, it fits very well with the Ayn Rand sensibility as well, which was explicitly atheistic and believed that humans were the the ultimate source of everything in terms of morality or reality itself. And so therefore whatever humans wanted to do was okay. Um, yeah. and there were there there should be no limits on any individuals there should be no limits economically on you. Then there should also be no technological limits on you either. And mm-hmm. it just, I mean, it's just like a continuous, This is like Ein Rand in space is what I call it sometimes when people ask. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. I'm not sure
1: I have that much more to to add to it. But okay, yeah, yeah so well, we
0: can go to the, yeah, the next one then if you want, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, so I already mentioned extropianism, the extropy institute, where extropy was supposed to be the sort of antonym of entropy, the opposite of, of entropy. and Which is
0: decay, just for people to clarify that, the decaying entropy.
1: Yeah, essentially a measure of like the amount of disorder within a system. So yeah, extropy yeah, was all about creating order in a universe that's otherwise governed by the second law of thermodynamics. And so yeah, the extropians... Just got really excited about these new emerging technologies. Maybe we can modify our germline so that our uh, all future generations have been modified in some way. Maybe we can tinker with genes that are responsible for the size of our brains. And so th- these are actual you know proposals that that people put forward. And so yeah, the extra movement just uh, one of one of the reasons I included in the acronym is not so much because of its contemporary presence as a well-defined kind of community, because it's more or less been superseded by subsequent ideologies and subsequent movements, but its legacy continues. So it, it played a really integral role in the development of transhumanism during the 1990s. And sort of,
0: yeah, radicalizing it, basically. Because, I mean, yeah, I think it's, it, it is important to note that, like, a lot of the early transhumanists, they saw what they were doing as sort of being a benefit to all of humanity and they wanted their efforts or these future hypothetical inventions to be available to everyone. And like, so, and and that's, and to an extent, like you can see kind of the shadow of that in present day transhumanism, but it's been fundamentally altered by extropianism, I would say.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I think that's right.
0: So So, all right, well, let's keep going then. (laughs) Sure.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so there were a lot of... So the next ideology that really took shape was probably the late 1990s, and this was singularitarianism. It has a a particular emphasis on machine intelligence, artificial superintelligence, and and this notion that we're, we're going to merge with machines, maybe our brains are going to be digitized, so we'll be we'll be uploaded to a computer. Maybe then we could live embody some kind of like Android robotic system to live in this particular world, or maybe we just migrate to a completely virtual reality. Um, yeah.
0: Well, and and, and 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 I'm I'm sorry. Just it's for introductory fine. purposes. So Singulitarianism refers to the technological sing- singularity, which is yeah. a term that was uh, popularized by the so-called. I hate the term futurist, but because it's it sounds so silly. But this guy named Ray Kurzweil, who came up, with, who basically said, look, people, at some point in the future, artificial intelligence will be it will surpass human intelligence, and that will be the most significant event in human history. And it's a borrowed term from physics, the idea that when you get to the event horizon of a black hole, you cannot escape that gravitational pull. And so whatever happens, you're committed to it regardless. Everything will be fundamentally different after that point. And so that's the term singularity for people who are not familiar with it. But but yeah, continue. I'm sorry. (laughs) No,
1: no. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, not only can you not escape the singularity of a black hole, but it, it escape beyond the event horizon, but you can't see beyond it because the gravitational yeah. pull of the black hole is so immense due to its extraordinary density. Light mm-hmm. cannot; it cannot. Photons cannot escape the the pull of black hole. So the event horizon is that point beyond which light is no longer able to. So by analogy, then the technological singularity will mark this moment. That where change, technological and scientific change becomes so rapid as a result of us merging with machines, maybe as a result of just creating some kind of machine superintelligence that recursively self-improves and therefore becomes radically superintelligent over a very short period of time, we're just unable to imagine proceed. Yeah,
0: what comes next? Yeah,
1: yeah. So it's just this this phantasmagoria of extraordinarily rapid technological change that will mark a fundamental rupture in human history. And so Ray Kurzweil, he discussed the idea like in 1999 in his book, The Age of Spiritual Machines, but it was really foregrounded in his 2005 book, uh, The Singularity is Near. And he divides all of cosmic history into these six epochs. And if I remember correctly, the division between the fourth and the fifth, that is when the singularity occurs, where we merge with machines, we create uh, a super artificial superintelligence, and then the key feature of the sixth epoch, the very last epoch in cosmic history, is where we spread out into space, and consequently, as, as he puts it, the universe itself wakes up. So we just spread consciousness throughout our entire future, which is the region of space that is theoretically accessible to us. And this idea, you know, it, it's it's even though I think a lot of people, for example, individuals at OpenAI like Shane Leg, co-founder maybe uh, Sam Altman, CEO uh, of OpenAI, they probably would not describe themselves as singularitarians. They nonetheless have been hugely influenced by this idea. And you can even see echoes of it in the rhetoric of Elon Musk, for example, who talks about preserving and spreading the light of consciousness (laughs) into the very far future. So that's very consistent with this Kurzweilian notion of the sixth epoch in which the universe itself wakes up as a result of this colonization explosion, which itself follows the merging of humans and machines, the creation of artificial superintelligence, and this exponential increase in the rate of technology.
0: And this is where some of the religion starts coming in,
1: (laughs) for sure. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I would say religion enters the picture at the very beginning with transhumanism. Because, I mean... The example I always give is that this idea, the term wasn't coined until, I can't remember, like 1940s or something, but it wasn't popularized until 1959 with uh, Julian Huxley's book, New Bottles for New Wine. Um, But nonetheless, Huxley developed the idea, I believe he referred to as evolutionary humanism initially, 30 years earlier his 1929 book, which was revealingly titled religion without revelation. And so transhumanism was supposed to be, from the very beginning, mm-hmm. a secular replacement for religion. And so, yeah, I, I think the basically what happens, like the 19th century, beginning of 19th century, Christianity was continued to be very dominant in the Western tradition. Throughout the 19th mm-hmm. century, it declined significantly among the educated classes. This is when Frederick Nietzsche said, God is dead, which then he adds... Yeah. And he's dead because we killed him. Karl Marx, yeah. Dedicated religion is the opening of the masses. And so there just was this mm-hmm. huge void, a religion shaped void. And transhumanism was one of many secular systems that was proposed in the latter 19th century, early 20th century to fill that hole.
0: So, yeah. Well, yeah. And it's also, and, and it, it's, it's related to this idea that for, for a lot of people, religion is, and I, I won't say that for everybody, but for a lot of people, the value of religion is that it, it helps them sort of satiate their craving for authority and for submission. And and you really do see that with with Tesprio, and we'll get into that further. But I think that sometimes people... It, it it may seem difficult for them to, when they will look at like a, a, a far right Christian fundamentalist who loves Elon Musk, who is an mm-hmm. atheist, transhumanist, and, and they, it doesn't, on paper, that shouldn't happen, but ultimately they have the same sort of psychological impulse, which is they want authorities to dominate and rule because hierarchy is ultimately what they're going for, but yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe it's just worth mentioning that the, the connection here also with libertarianism. I mean, libertarianism is, is advertised as an anti-authoritarian kind of it, system, but ultimately it's super authoritarian because it, it. Libertarians are advocates of a free market system in which you have these huge companies, corporations that are supposed to be free and uh, unconstrained mm-hmm. by regulation, but those corporations themselves are like. I mean, they're authoritarian systems. They're they're monarchies yeah. in a in a sense. I mean, I think both are yeah, right. well,
0: they yeah yeah, but, yeah. sorry, the economic freedom is the f- first and really only freedom that should exist under that yeah. framework. And so, under and so, if economic freedom is all that matters, <laughs> then you can be as authoritarian in your own fiefdom as you want. Yeah, and there's nothing exactly. wrong with it, and no one can say anything about it. And that is ultimately why it is authoritarian.
1: Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> there, were, there were some articles recently that mentioned that Musk sort of sees himself as a as a bit of a king, uh, which yeah, the hierarchical structure of these corporations in which people are, there's there's very rigid power relations between the different levels and so on, and then ultimately this kind of dictatorial control that by the people at the top. Uh, so yeah, anyways, there, there are lots of interesting connections here and. Maybe one last thing worth mentioning, relating to the connection between religion and these ideologies is, so th- there are many ways in which transhumanism, singularitarianism, and so on are religious. It's very facile to like put down some <laughs> worldview or ideology as, but by, by labeling it a religion. You see this all over the place. Wokeness is religion, conservatism is religion, communism, and so on and so on. But I think in the case of these ideologies, like it's that comparison, um, that categorization is really out. I mean, so for example, they even have their own version of resurrection, right? So on the one hand, a lot of them think that if we get, if, if we live to, to witness the singularity, which Kurzweil prognosticates will happen in 2045, that's the exact <laughs> year that is supposed to happen. So, told
0: him.
1: <laughs> yeah, I him. Yeah, I mean, that <laughs> itself is, is – th- there's a long history of religious people, like, predicting specific Oh, numbers, yeah. yeah, absolutely. The second coming will happen and so on. So, anyways, that itself looks very religious. But, you know, a lot of the reason, okay, if I live long enough to uh, witness the singularity, then I get to live forever. But also, maybe – I could just have my body cryogenized if I die before then. So they even have their own version of of resurrection. Uh, and there are lots of people in this community: McBostrom, Andrew yeah. Sandberg, Robin Hanson, Peter Dale, yeah, exactly, who have signed up with Alcor, a company based in California that just has this like large building with these big vats in which people are in cryogenic suspension. Awaiting- which
0: well, well, they claim yeah. it's suspension, but like it's really just. They froze someone, <laughs> so like there was absolutely no guarantee that if humanity ever did develop this idea of cryogenic freezing, that they did it the right way. And like, <laughs> there's no, it is literally not like humans do not have the biological plumbing to do that. We just don't. And if we did, yeah. we'd, like we would have done it. So that's what that. I, that's the part I think is so hilarious. Like that they, they have this faith in this, and there's absolutely no gary like all the evidence suggests that whatever you do to yourself in this way it's not going to work even if it might work for other people in the future
1: (laughs) yeah i mean you're you're exactly there, there is a kind of faith in the power of technological progress and so okay like maybe the the way that we're just cryogenizing these bodies today is not optimal but we'll have such advanced technology in the future that even if there is damage to the microstructure of our brains in mm-hmm. the future, we'll have the technologies to just go in and repair. Or fix it.
0: <laughs> so,
1: but I mean, that that's a kind of, that's a kind of faith. And in order to sign up with Alcor and have your body <laughs> cryogenized, it takes a certain degree of like trust, one, a kind of arguably unjustified belief, which is one, one notion of what faith means that will yeah. someday have these te- these magical technologies that will be able to revive us. Exactly.
0: Yeah. yeah. And you made a great point there about people overusing the, the word religion to apply to political philosophies or just philosophies in general. But I mean, the, the thing about religion that I think the essence of a religion is that it has a teleology, that it has a concept of what the final destination of humans would be. And I mean, of course, that's exactly what this is. And the test realism, it isn't even necessarily atheistic either, because like Peter Thiel, he's a Christian, like kind of this strange Germanic Protestant hybrid of Christian. But like people, people often think of him as just another atheist libertarian guy. But that's not what he's that's not what he's doing here.
1: Um, Yeah, there definitely are religious versions of transhumanism. So again, yeah. transhumanism itself is a kind of religion. If you're uh, an atheist uh, and you you buy into it, but also there are people who subscribe to traditional religious uh, um, belief systems who are also transhuman. So Christian transhumanism, Mormon transhumanism, is like a thing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it's it, well because Mormonism in itself actually is. I mean, I used to be a Mormon, so ah, I can okay. tell you, like Mormonism actually, you could argue, is transhumanism because. The point of in Mormonism, humans, like the God that humans know is a former human. And so, therefore, Mormonism is transhumanism. Like, that's the funny thing about Mormonism that a lot of people don't know is that Mormonism, it prefigured a lot of the concepts that exist now. Like, they basically kind of invented Christian nationalism also. It's in the Book of Mormon. The Mm -hmm. the ancient Hebrews who came to America, they were only allowed to live there in the book if they worship Jesus. And then, if, and I, that was God's decree that you couldn't live on this continent or mm-hmm. hemisphere if you didn't, if you weren't Christian. And so like, it's just over and over. If you don't do it, then God will kill you off. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, now that's basically what, like, that's what the evangelicals now believe that, that and, and it's all based in the Bible, but like, they hadn't really had any of these concepts until they came into contact with Mormonism, which is kind of funny. It's fascinating. But yeah. yeah. All right. Well so all right. So then we got the L here in wait to see. Yeah, see, actually C. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. For test yeah. For yeah. So into Yeah. <laughs> so
1: cosmism is basically so the, 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 the E extropianism, S for singular trans cos, and C for cosmism, those are just kind of variants of transhumanism. And there's lots to say about cosmism, because this this I this, this Term goes back to the the nineteenth nineteenth uh, um, century, and was developed by some some Russian uh, uh, thinkers. But really, what it denotes in in the acronym is sort of cosmism in its modern form. So this was developed by a computer scientist named Ben Gertzel, who was also the individual who christened the term artificial general intelligence. So he's played a pretty significant role. In the in basically putting AGI artificial general intelligence on the radar, making it a an explicit goal of some of the the most uh, powerful and wealthy companies billion billion dollar backed uh, companies like OpenAI and DeepMind their their explicit goal. So yeah, cosmism is is just this idea that uh, emerging technologies will not only enable us to radically modify the human organism, but once we spread into space, maybe we can engage in all sorts of manipulations and interventions on the universe that would enable us to basically just kind of redesign the universe itself. So they talk about space-time engineering, um, the possibility of future scientific magic, which is just based on this idea that technologies could become so advanced that if they were presented to contemporary people, we would be just utterly baffled and perplexed and awed by them. So yeah, this scientific magic, space-time engineering. um, And AI plays a pretty significant role in cosmism, but it doesn't presuppose that there will be a singularity. So maybe we'll be able to to go out and re-engineer galaxies and maybe space-time itself, even if there isn't a singularity, this moment where the pace of technological progress accelerates beyond our comprehension. So yeah, so, so that's, that's cosmism. And I, that takes us to rationalism. And so the, the, these first a few ideologies are all just kind of variants of transhumanism, as i mentioned. And then from rationalism on, there's also a, a particular connection between all of those ideologies. So should we move on to rationalism?
0: Okay. Yeah, let's let's do that. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So th- this was um, the, the, rationalism is an ideology that and a community that emerged out of a website, a community blogging website called Less Wrong, which was founded in 2009 by an individual named Eliezer Yudkowsky. And Yudkowsky is a transhumanist going back to the early 1990s who participated in the Extropian movement wrote about and anticipated and with some excitement and later on a fair amount of trepidation, the technological singularity, and also has close connections with Ben Gertel, who gave a talk at the Singularity Summit, which was organized by Ray Kurzweil, Elias Yudkowsky, and Peter Thiel. And so, yeah, rationalism is just the idea that, like, okay, if we're going to create this kind of techno-utopian post-human future among the stars in which there are trillions and trillions of future beings engaged in space-time engineering and so on, then that means we're going to date a lot of really smart people, quote-unquote smart people, doing a lot of really smart things. So let's try to take a step back and try to figure out how to optimize our smartness. In other words, how do we maximize our rationality? How do we maybe... So there's a particular focus on like cognitive biases and trying to neutralize them, Uh, the
0: use of cognitive heuristics and yeah. yeah, I'm sorry, and I and I have to say like some of their things that they come up with are just like they're they're cute actually. Like not even <laughs> they're just so naive like because none of these people really had any background in philosophy or logic. And so like they were this was just like kind of a a communal it's like it was like the wikipedia approach to epistemology. And so in some ways it's just laughably and laughably jejun, if you will. But I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> what do you think?
1: <laughs> I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, Yakowski himself is an autodidact who dropped out of, yeah. I think it was high school, maybe it was middle school. So never mm-hmm. went to, to college, which is fine. I mean, yeah, w- one shouldn't be judged purely based on sure, yeah. that. But For sure, yeah. But
0: it's like, if you're just discovering Heidegger or just coming into, I don't know, the, the Plato's Theory of Forms. Probably shouldn't be planning for the hu- future of humanity.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the advantages of going to universities, you get a kind of systematic introduction to uh, human knowledge. And if you're not a didact, maybe you and you're just relying on you know Wikipedia and clicking from one hyperlink to another, maybe you don't get that. So, anyways, I think a lot of people in the the lesser community tend to see themselves as as Intellectually superior in all sorts of, of ways. But my sense, at least, is that part of the reason for that being the case is many of them just like kind of it's there's a bit of a Dunning-Kruger effect where people who don't know about an issue um, tend to be more confident in their knowledge of that issue because y- y- they just don't know
0: what they in don't know. In their opinions. Yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah. So, anyways, less, less wrong. There's a huge emphasis on on a particular version of rationality, on Bayesianism, on certain approaches within decision theory. In fact, they've developed their own uh, theories within decision theory, which have not had any real impact at all within academia. So they're very popular yeah. among the, the less wrong people. But if you talk to actual experts, they're like, "No, this is just kind of a silly <laughs> well, I- idea."
0: Yeah, well, and and to be honest, like the idea of, of applying the the idea of funging mathematical probability, which is what Bayesian sort of theory is, to mor- moral decisions, like it's ludicrous. It makes no sense, and the idea that you're going to sort of eliminate all the cognitive biases or perception, not not even like like your process, but just things you can't even know about. Like Mm -hmm. it is literally impossible. Like it is just as dumb as these creationists claiming, well, what are the odds of an eyeball evolving? It's one times two to the 37th power. And it's like, you can't fucking know that you're just pulling that number out of your ass and, but, but you're, but you're doing it in a, in a way that sounds vaguely mathematical. So you think it sounds good, but it's just absurd. (laughs) <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely. There is an appearance of rigorousness and mathematical robustness to a lot of what the less wrong people talk about. But ultimately, yeah, I mean, it, it's like Toby Ord, for example, who's an influential effective altruist, co-founder of the Vuit. We'll talk about that in a moment, as well as one of the leading advocates of long-termism. He estimates that, for example, the, the overall probability of an existential catastrophe within the next 100 years, from 2020, when he published his book on the topic, to 2120, uh, is Russian roulette. So it's but it it's like, actually, he just pulled this number out of a hat. And it's supposed to be like sort of adding up the probabilities of like climate change, causing existential catastrophe, AI, and so on. But those where do those numbers come from? Like nowhere. So at first no, it's glance, garbage
0: in garbage out right
1: <laughs> garbage in, garbage out. so yeah at first glance it looks pretty rigorous like but actually it's just not at all and so another example that I think illustrates the silliness of this sort of quantitative approach was it comes from a, a less wrong uh, article that Yudkowsky authored, uh, authored in which he argues that if you have a choice between two scenarios one in which there's some unfathomable number of human beings who who must suffer the almost imperceptible discomfort of having a dust speck in their eye. So you add up all of that discomfort and then compare it to a single person being relentlessly and horribly tortured for 50 years. You should choose torture. Because why should you choose torture? Because it's less bad. Overall, if you do the math, 50 years of being tortured is just is less total amount of suffering than. All of these imperceptible. Just keep multiplying it, and eventually you get a, a number that is, is significantly large to justify this particular decision. So yeah, it's 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 strange and weird, and it's there's a sort of a, a certain comfort uh, using these numbers and mathematical formulations because the appearance of exactitude and precision with mathematics. Um, is one way to sort of eliminate a feeling of uncertainty, right? So like, okay, I'm in this, this moral situation where I have to choose between someone being tortured for 50 years or all of these people having a, a dust speck in their eye. What do I do? Well, you just crunch the numbers and you know that the dust speck scenario is worse. And, But ultimately, I think that sense of <clears throat> certainty and uh, confidence is just completely misplaced. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. absolutely. All right. Well, keeping on in the acronym here then.
1: Yeah. So moving on to effective altruism, there was an EA or effective altruist who once told me that EA is basically what happens when rationalists pivot from thinking about rationality to thinking about morality. And I feel like that's a pretty (laughs) good good description of what effective altruists Mm -hmm. are, are all about. So they're basically using many of the same tools, the same kind of ideas from decision theory to navigate these moral situations. So, I mean, Yakowski basically addressed this in that article about dust specs, but EA's are you know, interested in like, okay, if I have a certain amount of money and I want to maximize the total amount of good that I do in the world. So maybe that means like saving the total, the, the largest number of people possible. Should I give it to disaster relief or to you to buy anti-malarial?
0: Malaria. Benefits? Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, if you crunch the numbers, which maybe (laughs) the numbers are ultimately kind of meaningless or misleading or something like that, if you just ignore the difficulties with that, if you crunch the numbers, you'll find that buying those bed nets wins every time. You just save many more lives than if you give to disaster relief. And so, yeah, yeah, uh, I I think this is another example of one of these ideologies that at first Glance looks pretty reasonable because you just want to do the most good. But when you look at the details, all sorts of significant major problems emerge. So, just to give you another illustration, uh, one of the ideas that was developed by Effect Vultures was this notion of earn to give. So, maybe the best way to do the most good is not to go work for a nonprofit focused on animal welfare or environmental issues but rather to go get the most lucrative job one can. Maybe that's at Wall Street, working for a petrochemical company. Maybe it's at crypto. Perhaps it's for what Will McCaskill, another one of the co-founders along with Toby Ord of Effective Altruism, what he calls immoral organizations. And so you go work for these immoral organizations, make a whole lot of money, and then take that money and donate it. Maybe that's the best way to do the most good. And so there are a bunch of EAs who have given up careers in academia and decided not to pursue uh, getting or earning a medical degree in order to go work on Wall Street or in crypto or something like that. And so, yeah, one of these individuals was a guy by the name of Sam Bankman Fried. And he sat down with Will McCaskill in 2013, didn't really know what he was going to do with his life. And McCaskill said, you should earn to give. McCaskill said, Benjamin Freed was a, just graduating from MIT with a degree, I believe in physics. And McCaskill said, yeah, go work on Wall Street. That's the best way to maximize the, be your positive influence in the world. So he did that. He went to, to work on, for a company called Jane Street Capital, where another EA took a job as well, Matthew Wage. Then he left after a few years, worked for the Center for Effective Altruism, and then decided to get into Crypto. And probably most listeners are somewhat familiar with his story since then. (laughs) He made billions of dollars, pledged all of this money to long-termist causes, and Mm long-termism is one of the main cause areas of effective altruism. And then it turns out that he, as a long-termist utilitarian type person, committed to massive amounts of fraud and is now facing all these felony charges. So yeah, Um, so there are a lot of ideas. Once you 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 examine more closely the details of EA, the movement looks like actually it's just kind of flawed and in many ways kind of rotten from one end to the other. For example, when you are, are just crunching these numbers, when ethics is just reduced to a branch of economics and it's just about number crunching, then because a lot of the numbers are pulled out of a hat, you can kind of justify anything. So the EA movement, the Center for Effective Altruism, uh, basically, was the organization that bought a palatial estate. So basically a palace called Wytham Abbey. You can look up pictures online. I mean, it's just this massive old estate because they thought, well, that's, that, but by, by, purchasing this sumptuous, luxurious edifice in Oxfordshire, so a little bit outside of, of Oxford where Center for Effective Altruism is, is based, they could maybe then attract people just like Sam Bankman-Fried. They'll be like, oh, I'm impressed by this EA community. I went to and visited their their palace, basically, and they told me I could be a really, really good person by pursuing massive, trying to become filthy rich through crypto or by working on wall street or whatever. And so they thought Mm -hmm. maybe this would be a good recruitment tool. And so they spent, I think it was 15 million pounds on this palace and you can crunch the numbers in a certain way such that this looks like maybe the best way to do the most good, but ultimately take, (laughs) take a step back. I mean, EA is, yeah, it's this like super wealthy organization super wealthy movement that now is is buying palatial estates and so, something doesn't look right about that
0: <laughs> yeah for, are you really helping humanity way. by yeah are you really helping humanity by buying yourself a palace
1: <laughs> you can just yeah well, I, get I, the numbers to work
0: yeah it's it's true and like and, and you can see this sort of fungibility of ethics and economics. I mean you can see that even just in more mundane news like with Donald Trump and the trial that he's having right now for having committed all this fraud in the state of New York with and he's claiming, well these are it's just all about me overestimating the value of my properties. That's all this is, and it's all fungible. You can say anything is worth any amount of money. it doesn't matter. And like, so, so it's so, and he's right about that in some regard, but of course, that's not actually what he's on trial for. He's on trial for lying about the square footage of things and the number of bedrooms for things and, and the, what the taxable value like, that's the actual trial, but you know, the, the overall moral point he's trying to make is actually correct here and, and applicable in this case. And you, and I would say also though, the, the idea of effective altruism and libertarianism, like, again, this is. This is Ayn Rand all over again, because according to Ayn Rand, the the best and most moral action is to self to serve yourself. That it is the gospel of selfishness, as some of her contemporary critics had called it at the time. And this is just Ayn Rand all over again. And like that's kind of the the hilarious and maybe but also disturbing reality of when you look at all these ideas. Like they 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 fashion themselves as newfangled and all about the future, but they're just literally the recycled rantings of this crazy woman from the, from the 1920s. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sorry guys. (laughs) But yeah, but I mean, but in addition to being just kind of intellectually insipid, Um, it's worse than that, though, because these people have so much money. I mean, Elon Musk is a devotee. Peter Thiel is another one. Like, they have more money. Uh, People with this sort of delusional, mass levels of delusion, mass levels of delusion, they've never had this level of money in human history. In the past, people who got super rich, they just... We're addicted to money. That's all. That's the only thing they really wanted was to get more money. But these guys have something else on their minds, and and they're really pushing for it, and 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 like kind of distorting our our politics, not just in the U.S. but in other countries as well. You want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, as you suggest, the EA and long term is really the test grill movement in general. That's just billions and billions of dollars. I mean, tens of billions of dollars behind it. Um, Some of the most influential people in the world are advocates of long-termism, or Peter Thiel gave a keynote address at an uh, EA conference. EA, like one of their main conferences. So it wasn't just like some kind of fringe EA group. But yeah, so, so... Already, they're just extremely powerful. From a uh, kind of, with respect to how much money they have, but they're also increasingly trying to infiltrate the political arena. And so, Toby Ord, who I mentioned earlier, co-founder of, of EA, who's one of the main long-termists, he's been an advisor for you know government reports, a report that was released by the United Nations. In fact, a a UN dispatch uh, article from last year mentions that, and I'm more or less quoting here, foreign policy circles in general, the United Nations in particular, are beginning to embrace long-termism, which again is just a a variant of EA. And last year also, there was a, or was it earlier this year? I I can't quite remember. There was a candidate for Congress from Oregon who was... In ea who ea long termist who got a record breaking amount of campaign money from Sam Bankman Freed and was running on basically a kind of long termist platform. Uh, ultimately lost by a large margin. I think because people were and was a about. Democrat
0: and was it was a Democrat. Yeah, and he was a, and he was a Democrat. Yeah. like that. That's important to note. It's yeah, like and ba- bankman absolutely. free gave in millions and millions of dollars to Democrats, and, well. and like I mean that and that is I mean as real vul- vulnerability yeah as Republicans yeah, and so this is like these are these are serious um, issues, and, and 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 the other thing also is that they're trying to sort of distort not just the campaign finance system, but also the educational systems as well. So uh, you had mentioned some of the Oxford connections with EA. You want to talk about some of that a little bit?
1: So rationalism was really a product of mostly of people who were based in Silicon Valley. EA was developed primarily by people based at Oxford University. And so William McCaskill, Toby Ord, Nick Bostrom, who's co-founder of of Long-Termism, has been very influential. And yeah, so at Oxford, over the past five years or so, there's been a proliferation of different institutes that are very well-funded and are explicitly committed to EA values, in many cases to Long-Termist values, because Long-Termism has become probably the most influential cause area within EA, so EA initially was focused just on alleviating global poverty. And then it expanded to include animal welfare and long-term, because basically EA has realized that, okay, if I want to, the future of humanity could be really, really big. And the total number of people who could exist in the far future could be enormous. And so if my goal is to positively influence the greatest number of people, and most people who could exist will exist in the very far future, then the best, maybe the best way to maximize my positive influence or the greatest number of people is to focus on the very far future rather than the present. So, it's it's not that future people matter more, it's just a numbers game. Once again, you can see a theme here. <laughs> There's just so many yep. more possible people in the very far future if we
0: that they matter with, more. Yeah. <laughs>
1: that they just in aggregate they matter more.
0: Yeah, and somehow they these guys are able to know what will help them and not anybody else. No one else knows how to help them. <laughs>
1: yeah. And so you have all of these, these institutes now affiliated with Oxford, so they get to leech off of the prestige of you know, Oxford's name. And there's so much money that they're able to attract people to work on EA long termist causes, even if those people don't really subscribe to the worldview. So I've spoken to many people in the community who more or less agree with my critiques but say, you first point out that the philosophy job market is absolutely horrendous, which is true. <laughs> and here you've got a community of people who have just enormous amounts of money, so much money, they don't know what to do with it. They, they literally, they're giving out $100,000 prizes, five of them to blogs on EA or long termist issues. Just if the blog looks good, we'll just give you $100,000. That's how much money they have. <laughs> you know, just, they don't know what to do with it. And so consequently, you get a bunch of people who like don't even subscribe to the long-termist or EA worldview, but are nonetheless cogs in that machine that is propelling forward this particular worldview, these ideologies. And so, yeah, th- there is a kind of capture that they have achieved within academia. And yeah, it's, it's a bit, it's worrisome. There's so much self-censorship in that community. It's kind of amazing. I mean, I think one of the reasons that my situation was unique is that I was basically the only person over the past, I don't know, five years who was in this community for a long time, was in this community and is critical and crucially has publicly come out as critical pretty much everybody else is just still in that community because they're getting paid people ultimately at the end of the day people just want to be able to, to put food on the table themselves and, yeah yeah and I, I'm sympathetic with that so yeah anyways it, it's a it's a worrisome situation because there's a kind of momentum that they're able to build within I mean even though if you go and talk to professional philosophers the I would say that the large majority would say that EA and long-termism are misguided or perhaps just complete non-starters. It's just like utterly bizarre. I mean, a lot of people would look at the arguments for why long-termism is true and say that argument is a reductio. So rather than the long-termist saying, here's an argument that supports my long-termist conclusions, they'd say you shouldn't Mm -hmm. accept those conclusions precisely because the arguments are so bizarre. It's so unconvincing. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, but nonetheless, yeah. they've got so much money and so much power that they're able to still attract. Yeah. Is, still, but is it awkward? and
0: yeah, Sorry, for <laughs> sure. Yeah, no, no. Well, so I mean, so these ideas are so they're so rich and they're so influential, but also so obscure. I mean, do people when you have tried to talk to people about this stuff? I mean, I I feel like some people when they hear about it, they just can't believe it's even real. And like, it's just so weird and dumb to them that they can't, they don't even want to take it seriously. Is that is has that been your experience? So um, dealing I, am, with some people?
1: I am thinking of writing a book on the test real bundle of ideologies. And mm-hmm. one of the ways that I might open it is by mentioning exactly this issue that the second half of 2022, there were a whole bunch of reporters that got in touch with me about long-termism, EA, transhumanism. What are these ideologies? I didn't have that acronym coined yet. I mean, the acronym was developed by Dr. Timmy Gebru and I. I coined it, but she played an integral role in sort of developing this concept. So even before that acronym existed, people were basically just curious about the Tesco Bundle. And so reporters would contact me, I'd, I'd give an interview, explain what long-term is, and what this techno-utopian vision of our post-human future among the heavens consists of, that is at the very heart mm-hmm. of the test bundle. And on numerous occasions, I had reporters come back to me and say, I talked to my editor and there is no way they're going to publish an article <laughs> on this. Because they, they told me, whoever you spoke to, which is me, clearly... It's just like making stuff up, doesn't know what you're talking <laughs> about, because it's it's so bizarre that, it's like, go tell whoever you spoke to that they are
0: making this <laughs> <just> up. To, <laughs>
1: making this up. And, and whoever they are, don't believe them and move on to another topic. And then fast forward, like six months later, I'd have the same reporters contact me and say, my editor has read some stuff. Understands now that you were <laughs> completely accurate <laughs> about all of this, and so we want to, to publish an article. and Could 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 you be interviewed for that? So it was it was an amazing. You're exactly right. There's so many people who first come across this and think it is so strange. It just can't be true, or they'll read something I wrote and think. Hey, He's
0: Yeah. Quick
1: example: there was, <laughs> there was a, a an author um, who published an article in the Los Angeles Review of Books, and they cited a Current Affairs article that I published on long-termism. And in their LARB, so Los Angeles Review of Books, in their LARB article, they said, they refer to my article as, uh, uh, they use the word hyperbolic. And like, oh, it's, it's just a bit like unhinged, this article that I wrote. Fast forward mm-hmm. eight months later, the same person is citing my current affairs article in their article's in an approving manner. Like, actually, if you want to know more about this, go look at the current affairs article by Emil P. Torres. So it was just a, yet another example of somebody who, like, yeah, thought, like, this is just crazy, and my current affairs article is just completely unhinged and is probably completely misrepresenting these ideologies. Then they did some research and went, like, oh, actually, that's completely on point. <laughs> and
0: so, Well, it's like I said in the intro, yeah, truth is stranger than fiction in this case, rude. for sure. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, yeah. So so I mean what what maybe let now it's your turn to play futurist here. Like what like what is the future of this ideology? And I mean, are people who are want a more democratic present like what can they do about it? Or, you know, is are they doomed to win because no one takes it seriously until until they have all the power? I mean, what's your thought?
1: Yeah, good question. So I don't have any suggestions for how exactly to counter it except that step number one is just understanding what it is sort of just just naming naming it and understanding that it's potentially dangerous beyond that i kind of don't know yet (laughs) one thing i'm I'm, it's a topic Mm. that i I would like to uh reflect more on especially if i end up writing this book but i mean so the testable movement ea's and long-termists in particular made a huge effort beginning not last summer, but summer 2022 to evangelize for this worldview among the public, to the public. And it just completely backfired. Will McCaskill was published a book in uh, August of, I think it was August of 2022, summer of that year, and had a promotional budget ceiling of $10 million, uh, maybe more than that, just an enormous amount of money. And he ended up on The Daily Show and New York Times, Time Magazine, New Yorker, and so on covered it. So there was a, and for a while, these the community and McCaskill and, and so on were flying high. Again, he was on the Daily Show, and like that's just kind of an amazing thing. Had this long chat with Trevor Noah, who was very uh, just impressed by by McCaskill, and then FTX collapsed, and all of a sudden you had. These news articles saying Sam Bankman-Fried looks like he committed truly massive amounts of, of fraud that maybe makes Bernie Madoff look like just a bumbling amateur, <laughs> and <laughs> and right there in that in those first paragraphs of so many of these articles was Sam Bankman-Fried is an effective altruist and or a long termist. So oh my gosh, it just this this PR push just completely backfired, and it was just kind of downhill uh, from then. There was just just one scandal after the other. The Whiteham Abbey thing came out. There was an email that uh, I stumbled upon in which Nick Bostrom, one of the most influential figures in this community, said, quote, blacks are more stupid than whites. And then he used the N-word. And so, you know, that was really bad press. And so anyways, all of that's to say that the reputation of long-termism, EA, and test realism in general among the public is kind of in shambles right now. And and I don't know if it can really be repaired. It's but it may
0: not matter though. That's the thing.
1: That's exactly exactly you, you're one hundred percent right yeah. about that. That's my worry is maybe that doesn't that doesn't matter because they have so much power and so many connections to hugely influential figures in Silicon Valley, who figures who are making decisions that affect all of society the way societies is organized that affect our lives, the lives of our children and grandchildren, maybe grandchildren. It's, you know What they're doing with AI right now, that may have long-term consequences for, the, uh, for our societies. So yeah. maybe it doesn't matter if the public thinks long-termism is nutty and effective altruism is flawed and have those ideologies just really intimately connected with SBF, a fraudster, and so on. Maybe it doesn't matter. And so th- this is the the big worry, and this is the reason why I think writing a book about this this topic might be warranted because I think these ideologies are kind of here to stay, at least for the foreseeable future. And yeah. again, what can we do about that? I don't really know yet,
0: but yeah, but it, it works. Well, one thing, yeah. Well, one thing people can do, and I think they really need to do, is that the. Uh, so I, I I used to be on the political right. I created several large right wing media institutions. and then, having switched over to the left, I can tell the the level of professionalism, the the knowledge of how politics works is just significantly lower on the left. And, <laughs> you know, yeah and 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 a lot of it just simply is that they don't pay they don't pay attention to the political theory. They don't pay attention to sort of the the way that messaging work, that, that, that they don't understand what polls are for. Polls are not for to help you determine what you should do. Therefore, how to sell what you want to do. But that's how you use polls. And, and they don't seem to understand any of that stuff. And, and they don't build institutions and they don't help people have careers. So like what we need, the people who are watching or re- listening to this, you guys have to tell the people in your lives that this stuff matters. And you need to get that message pushed out into the food chain, the progressive food chain, as much as you can individually, and including supporting people like yourself who are writing about technology from a pro-democracy standpoint and trying to call attention to this stuff, because it's really important, even if even if you personally are not a tech person, or you don't think of yourself as a philosophy geek or whatever, you need to understand that, that this stuff's really important, even if you're not into it, and encourage people to support writers and podcasters and whatever who are, who are into this stuff. So that's one thing I would say, at least.
1: I would agree with all that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Well, yeah, it's it, this has been a good conversation. We're probably gonna have to have future ones to kind of keep tabs on these people. And so I'm glad I'm glad we we're able to do this first one here.
1: This this was fantastic. Yeah, it was really lovely chatting with you.
0: Okay, good. And so for people who want to keep up with you, where would you recommend that they do so?
1: Yeah, as of now, I'm still on Twitter slash X. Mm-hmm. And my handle is at X. Riskology, so as in the study of risk so x Riskology, but i'm also on blue sky with that same handle and okay yeah in my website your website
0: risk. yeah yeah
1: www.xriskology.com so there's there's continuity here
0: okay <laughs> cool well great i'm glad we were able to do this thanks very much for uh, being on theory of change phil thanks so much for having me it's great All right. So that's the program for today. I appreciate everybody for joining us for the discussion. And if you want to get more of the show, just go to theoryofchange.show, where you can get the archives with video, audio, and transcripts of all the episodes. And then if you like this program, you can also get some other ones that I am on through the Flux.community website. We've got several other ones there worth checking out. So I encourage everybody to do that. And if you are interested in supporting the show, you can go to patreon.com slash flux where you can sign up for a uh, membership level. And we also have uh, memberships on the theoryofchange.show address. You can subscribe on Subsec as a free option or as a paid option. And I'm very grateful to everybody who is sustaining the show. I definitely need your help with that. I couldn't do it without you. So thank you very much. And I think that will do it for today. Thank you everybody for watching, listening, or reading. I'll see you next time.